My name is Nate Irwin. I'm the pastor of Global Outreach here, and it's my privilege to fill in for Pastor Mark while they're on vacation. So would you join me in prayer as we begin to look at God's word? Lord Jesus, you promised that when the Holy Spirit come, would come, he would bring glory to you by taking from what is yours and making it known to us. And that's our simple prayer, O Holy Spirit, that in these next moments you would take from those treasures of wisdom and knowledge that reside with the Lord Jesus and you would make them known to us so that we might love you more deeply and follow you more closely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Belief. That is our theme for today. Do you believe? Do you believe in LeBron James? If you don't, watch this and you will. Are you a witness? Last Monday, the Cleveland Monk blog had this entry. Seven years ago, Nike coined a phrase that fits LeBron and his personality perfectly. We are all witnesses. And we were. And he loved it. The phrase implies expectation. An expectation to see something unforgettable. People witness miraculous works, acts that make them believe. The implication is that if you are a witness to LeBron James' activities on court, you will believe in him as a basketball player. And I, for one, am a witness and I believe. There is a feeding frenzy now during this free agency period because everybody across the country believes in LeBron James. You have everyone from Jay-Z to the Russian billionaire who now owns the Nets trying to get LeBron to sign on the dotted line for them because they were witnesses to him and they believe in him. And I am a believer as well. But you know what? The problem with believing in LeBron James is that he can't do squat for me. (laughs) This morning we're going to talk about somebody that if you believe in him, he can do everything for you in this life and also in the one to come. And the theme from our text this morning is very simple. It is this, that Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our faith, and of all of our trust. We don't need some fancy poster. We don't need a car to get us to believe in LeBron James. We have in the text today everything that we need to put our full faith and our full trust in Jesus Christ. Now, we're in the section of Matthew that Mark has titled Enigma, and with good reason. You remember back in chapter 13, John Uh, Jesus starts this section by giving teachings in parables. And he says, the reason I'm teaching you in parables is so that those who can't see will not be able to see. And those who can't hear will continue to not be able to hear. And we go, huh? Why would Jesus do that? There's There's a puzzle. There's a mystery here. But what he wants us to see and what Jesus in the rest of chapter 13 goes on to describe in the parables is that when you meet Jesus, you come to a fork in the road. And you have to choose one way or the other. Either you're going to believe in him or you're going to reject him. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. So we have the parable of the soils, of different ways that people have responded to Jesus. We have the wheat and the tares. 
There's this constant decision-making that needs to happen. And what Matthew goes on to do then from chapter 13 right through 16 is he, he gives us illustrations of the way that this principle works itself out in real life. And he tells us stories of people that meet Jesus and some of them reject him and others accept him. So chapter 16 is critical now in the book of Matthew because we're coming to a climax when Jesus will ask his disciples in the text for next week, who do you say that I am? And Joe Bartimus is going to exposit that for us next week. He's going to solve the enigma. So you're going to have to come back next week. But today we're going to see two groups of people who respond to Jesus in two different ways. The Pharisees and Sadducees on one hand and the disciples on the other. Each one has a different response. And as the text moves forward, we find that each of these groups come and interact with Jesus sort of in a keystone cops kind of routine. It's pretty humorous, as we'll see. And then Jesus has a response to each one of them. But the two groups are these. You have the no faiths and the little faiths. You have the cynics and you have the fretful. You have the skeptics and you have the worriers. You have the head shakers and you have the hand ringers. One group does not believe in who Jesus is. The other group does not believe in what Jesus can do for them. And I wonder if you are in either of those camps today. First, the cynics, verses 1 to 4. Jesus has just come back now from uh, a, a Gentile area where he had been preaching. And interestingly enough, he was believed on in that area. And now when he comes back into Jewish territory, the scripture is fulfilled that says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Because as soon as he steps foot in Jewish territory, the Pharisees and Sadducees come up to him and test him. You remember a couple of weeks ago how Mark described that the Pharisees had been sent from Jerusalem some 80 miles by foot north to the region of Galilee in order to trap Jesus, to test him. You see, Jesus has become a significant problem for them with his authoritative teaching and his miraculous works. They believe him to be a charlatan leading people astray. And so they've come up now to discredit him and to finish him off so that the people are no longer led astray. And it's very curious that the Pharisees and Sadducees would join forces because they actually didn't like each other very much. Now, they were together on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, but they had a lot of differences among them. And here's the easiest way for you to remember the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the Methodists of the day and the Pharisees were the Baptists. <laughs> now, I can get by with that, I think, because my mom grew up a Methodist and my dad grew up a Baptist. But the, the Sadducees were a smaller group, they were wealthier, they were aristocratic, and they were religiously more liberal than the Pharisees. Their focus was more on the temple and, and what happened there than on the truth of the Bible itself. They were rationalistic. They did not believe in miracles or in the resurrection. And they also were more willing to compromise with the Romans who were ruling them so that they could live like they wanted to. Now, on the other hand, the Pharisees were your fundamentalists. They were conservative. They were traditional. They were your working class, your tradesmen. They were the ones who focused on the Bible and all of the traditions that they had built up around the Bible, as Mark described a couple of weeks ago, to protect it and make sure we didn't disobey it. 
They were not willing to compromise. And so here we have our well-heeled liberals and our fighting fundies joining forces to attack a common enemy, Jesus Christ. They have come, the text says in verse 1, to test him. The very same word that's used in Matthew 4 for when the devil came to test Jesus. They want him to fail and to fall. And what was the test? Verse 1, to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, when you read that, your reaction might be the same as mine was when I first read that. A sign from heaven? What has Jesus been doing for the last several chapters? I mean, he's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on the water. He's healed the sick. He's made the lame walk. He's given sight to the blind. He's given hearing to the deaf. And then, by the way, he fed 4,000 more people. And you're asking for a sign from heaven? Well, what you don't understand is that they didn't ask for a miracle. They asked for a sign. You see, all those things were things that were done down on our level, on the earthly plane. And those were things that they felt that Satan himself could do. Either a, a, a trickster, a magician, or Satan himself could do all of those things that Jesus had done. In fact, you remember in chapter 12, they had accused Jesus of driving out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So they remain unimpressed with the miracles that Jesus has done. And they're not asking for a miracle, they're asking for a sign in the heavens. Something that would be spectacular, undeniable. Something that would be beyond contradiction. Literally from the sky. Like when fire fell out of the sky when Elijah had made that altar on the top of Mount Carmel. That's what they were asking for. You see, they thought Jesus was a fraud. And they thought that when he would not be able to do a sign like this, which they were convinced he wouldn't be able to do, that he would be discredited and the people would leave him and they would be restored to their place of leadership in the community. So how did Jesus respond to this challenge? Now remember, this is Jesus Christ, who the Bible says was the creator of the world. He formed the mountains, having armed himself with strength. Can Jesus give them a sign from heaven? That's like asking LeBron James if he can make a layup. It's like asking Peyton Manning if he can palm a football. It's like asking Lionel Messi if he can juggle a soccer ball. Are you tracking with me yet? No, you're not. It's like asking Pavarotti if he can sing happy birthday. Or Barishnikov if he can stand on one leg. Or Michelangelo if he can draw a stick figure. Or, or Bach if he could play chopsticks. Are you with me yet? I'm not feeling it. No. It's like asking Rachel Ray if she can make scrambled eggs. I knew Linda would like that one. It's like asking Steven Spielberg if he could take your picture. Or, or Meryl Streep if she could do a skit for you. Or Steven Jobs if he could reboot your computer. Of course, if it's not an Apple, maybe he couldn't. I don't know. But the point is, this is a gimme. This is so easy. Jesus could have done it just like that. Imagine all that power at his disposal. If I had been in Jesus' shoes, you know what I would have wanted to do? I would have wanted to throw that dunk down in their face. I would have wanted the clouds to, to maybe gather together and spell out in Hebrew, this is the Messiah, dummies. <laughs> and then have an arrow coming down, landing on top of Jesus' head. And I think I'd throw in some thunder and lightning just to shake things up a little bit. And 
probably a, you could do a 10.0 on the Richter just to shake these guys and teach them who was in charge. That would get through to them, wouldn't it? Now, if Jesus had given them a sign from heaven, would they have believed? Take 20 seconds and just talk about that question with your neighbor. Seriously, just want to hear a little buzz. If Jesus had given them a sign from heaven, would they have believed? Whoa. That's good. Do we have a consensus yet? No. We got a no. We got a down. Another down. Okay. Well, what did... We'll come back to that in just a minute. What did Jesus do, actually? Well, let's look at verse 2. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret... The signs of the times. Jesus did nothing of the sort that I would have done. But he simply said to them, you guys are pretty good meteorologists. Red in the morning, sailors take warning. Red at night, sailors delight. He said, you can read the signs in the heavens. The the very same word that they had asked, by the way, for. He said, you can read the signs in the heavens. Again, the same word for signs. You know how to interpret what you see in the universe But you can't figure out the signs of the times. The things that have been done right in front of you that everybody is talking about, those are the things that you can't perceive. The signs of the times are right now the things that I have been doing. And you're as blind as a bat to those things. To ask for a sign meant that they couldn't discern the signs because God had already given them to them. Then Jesus goes on in verse 4, and he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The word he uses for evil there means something that's bad or that's spoiled. It's used for a worthless servant or a piece of fruit that's gone bad. it's, It's something that's in poor condition. It's unusable because it's just lost any ability to provide anything. And he says, that's what you guys are. You're evil. It's a word that's used of the devil himself. And it really means anybody that's opposed or against God is called evil. And and why is that? Because to ask for a sign when Jesus has surrounded himself with signs is itself evil and wicked. It is great hypocrisy, Matthew Henry says, when we slight the signs of God's ordaining to seek for signs of our own prescribing. That's exactly what they were doing. No, Jesus does not perform signs to order. He's not Burger King where you get to have it your way. He's not a circus performer. He's not submitting his acts to a laboratory test to be verified. He is not on call for our every whim. He doesn't pander to our human desires. No, calling down signs from God to impress people would degrade God. He is God, you see, and we are not. So that is why it is not spiritual to ask for a sign, but rather it is wicked because it's disbelieving what God has already done. But Jesus piles on. He says you're also an adulterous generation, a word that means we know well to be unfaithful, to be disloyal. You see, this wasn't just anybody that he was talking to. These were his chosen people. 
the people that he had chosen hundreds of years ago to be his treasured possession. They had the law and the prophets. God had spoken to them time and time again. God had promised that a Messiah would come for them. And now his own people, when he comes to them, turn their back on him and reject him. And he says, that is spiritual adultery. Not to believe when I have come to my own people. And finally, Jesus says, no sign will be given it. Verse 4, except the sign of Jonah. What was that? Well, as you can remember, a few weeks back, we've already talked about that. And that's why Matthew doesn't bother to explain it here, because he already has. The sign of Jonah is simply this, that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Jesus says that is the sign and the only sign that this generation is going to have. And ironically, do you remember these same leaders' reaction to that sign once it happened? Matthew 28, Jesus is risen, the tomb is empty, and they panic. Rather than believe, they pay some money to the soldiers to spread the story that the disciples came and stole the body. They didn't believe that sign, and I doubt if they would have believed if it had been written in heaven either. Why? Because in their hearts, they were disinclined to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. You see, teaching that doubt can only be overcome by signs is condemned here. And it's their hardness of heart that Jesus talked about in chapter 13 that is preventing them from seeing. They're like the French atheist Voltaire, who said, even if a miracle should be wrought in an open marketplace before 1,000 sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. The skeptics, the cynics. And so Jesus, at the end of verse 4, left them and departed. Jesus had told his disciples not to throw their pearls before swine. And when he sent them out to minister the gospel, he said, if a village doesn't accept you, shake its dust off your feet and move on. And so Jesus does the same thing here. He said, if you leaders don't want to accept me, you've had your chance. Now I'm done with you and I'm going to go on to others who may elect to believe in me. The cynics in our story. The second group is the fretful, verses 5 through 12. And here our story takes an even more interesting turn. It's hard to trace exactly what happened, but as we combine this with the account of it in Mark chapter 8, here's kind of the way the story develops. They get in the boat to go to the other side, and verse 5 says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So they, they've, they've ministered, they've taught, Jesus is healed. Now, they have this little confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then Jesus leaves them, and they get in the boat, and either in the boat or on the other side of the lake, they realize, uh-oh, somebody forgot the cooler with the lunch. <laughs> and, and here we are again in a remote place without anything to eat. What are we going to do? Yeah, that's right. They're pretty slow, aren't they? But, but Jesus says something very curious to them in verse 6. He said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus loves throwing out these pithy little statements. And they didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. Look at verse 7. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. Now, I would love to have seen this scenario because, you know, you've been in, in, at parties or meetings where there's a lot of talking going on and somebody says something, everybody laughs, and you didn't quite get it. 
You know, so what do you do? You take somebody aside and you said, now, now what did they say or what were they getting at? And you look over your shoulder, you make sure that, that they don't hear you talking about it because then they'd know you didn't get it and so forth. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. The disciples, and this is a small group anyway, you know, they didn't get what Jesus said. So they kind of huddle up over here and they say, what in the world is he talking about? And, and the best thing that they can come up with is that Jesus is upset that they forgot lunch. I mean, yeast, he's talked about, that must mean bread. That must mean he knows we don't have any lunch, and so he's angry with us for not doing that. We're definitely going to need to assign a new guy to the lunch detail here. (laughs) But now, where are we going to get any bread in this remote place? Now, notice Jesus' response, verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this. It's hilarious how the disciples can't hide anything from Jesus. Just like us husbands can't hide anything from our wives. The Greek is really cooler. It just says simply, but knowing. Jesus is knowing. Way more so even than our wives. Because he knows everything. So he, he knew what they were talking about. There's no use trying to hide from him anyway. But I love the way that Jesus responds. Because if you or I had been there again, I would have been tempted to grab a couple of these knuckleheads and smash their heads together and say, how come you guys keep forgetting food? And besides, I wasn't even talking about lunch in the first place. But no, Jesus forgives them for their forgetfulness. That's no problem. He, he patiently switches to their track and he comes down to their little world of worry because they are the fretful ones. And he says, oh, you're worried there's no bread for lunch? You shouldn't be worried about that. The fact that you are worried means that you have little faith. Look at verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? It's interesting that to the disciples, chapter 13 says, had been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And here a few chapters later, they can't even see the most obvious truths at all. Apparently those secrets are quite safe with them. (laughs) They're just not getting it. But Jesus is always patient with them. He understands our weaknesses. And he doesn't call them little brains. He doesn't care how smart we are. He easily forgives them for forgetting the lunch. But there is something here deeply concerning to Jesus in their response, and that is the fact that they have little faith. So Jesus coins a word. This is a, it's a single word in Greek, little faiths. And it's used five times in the book of Matthew and once in Luke. It's not used anywhere else in classical Greek literature. It's used, for instance, it's little faiths. And, and it's really... Like, they just have almost no faith is what he's trying to say. Little, tiny, itsy-bitsy faiths is who you guys are. He had used it in 630 of those that worry about what they're going to wear and eat and drink. Those people are little faiths. He used it of the disciples when they were afraid on the lake in the storm. Oh, little faiths. And then Peter began to sink. And he called Peter, oh, you of little faith. And then he'll use it again in chapter 17 when the disciples can't drive out a demon from the epileptic boy. They shouldn't be worrying about lunch, should they? Should they? Why not? Why shouldn't they be worrying about lunch? Because Jesus has already shown he can take care of that problem. In fact, he goes on to say, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember 
And then in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand? He uses three verbs of the disciples. They fail to perceive, they fail to remember, and they fail to understand. He says, have you got forgotten so quickly what I've just done a few days ago, a few weeks ago? And he quizzes them to help them remember. And it's interesting the way Mark tells the story. Jesus actually asks the question, how many baskets were left over when I fed 5,000? And he waits for an answer. The disciples think and go, yeah, I think there were 12 left over. And he says, okay, when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Wait for an answer. Seven, they sheepishly respond. Yeah, I guess we don't need to worry about lunch because, Jesus, you can handle that. Now, it's not that we should be foolhardy or careless and fail to provide for ourselves, but when we've done what we can, or if we've just made a mistake or forgotten something, we need not worry because Jesus has our backs. If only we will have the eyes of faith. Several years ago, something called the magic eye came out. And when somebody first told me about this, I thought, this is bizarre. They said, if you look at one of these pictures very carefully, you will see an image inside of it. And they said, you have to kind of let your eyes lose their focus and try to focus behind the picture. And and eventually, a a picture will snap into place. And I thought they were just speaking. I thought they were pulling my leg. They said, no, really, it's true. So I practiced and practiced and practiced. And, And finally, I got to be able to read magic eye pictures to see them. Now, in this picture, this looks to most of you just like a bunch of colors. You see maybe Mount Rushmore and a a dolphin or something. But there's actually something inside this picture that if you had a magic eye, you could see. Has anybody done these before? Has anybody... Do you know what is in this picture? Has anybody seen it yet? Take a look. Look deeply in this picture. Don't look at the surface. Somebody first hour got it. (laughs) Ha! <laughs> LeBron James is the suggestion. I, <laughs> Jill, I wish I could have found one with, with him in it. But no, he's not in here. Who said that? You got it. There is an airplane, and a pilot would figure that out. There is an airplane in this picture. In fact, when you see it, it jumps out at you. It's three-dimensional, isn't it, Scott? It, it's so clear and crisp right there. Now, why can't most of you see it? And I'm not pulling your leg. This is really in there. Because you don't have the right eyes. You haven't learned to see things from this 3D perspective. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling his disciples. When you look at life, you see it on this simple external surfacey level. And you don't see behind it to the reality of what's really happening. You don't perceive, he said, you don't understand what's going on. And probably some of you are not even listening to me now because you're trying to find the airplane. (laughs) It's really in there. You can uh, just Google it. Magic Eye. Practice this afternoon. It kind of makes you a little bit dizzy, but when it works, it is really cool. Jesus goes on in verse 11, and he does gently chide the disciples. How is it that you fail to understand. He said, you've been with me so long now and you're still not getting it. That's really kind of disappointing. You should be farther along than you are now. But then he gets back to his original point and at the end of verse 11, he repeats what he's already said because there's something much more important that he wants to teach them than not worrying about bread. 
He says at the end of verse 11, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, the forgetting of bread was a good springboard for Jesus to talk about something that's in bread, which is yeast. It's something that permeates all through it and affects it. And he says there is a teaching out there that will permeate your whole life and it will destroy it if you allow it to. And that teaching is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And finally, the disciples understand. Then, verse 12, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so the question is, what is that teaching? If we can answer that question, we're close to the heart of this whole text this morning. When I first read this passage, I thought it meant all of the Pharisees' teaching that amounted to hypocrisy and legalism. Well, Jesus has already dealt with that in chapter 13, and he's going to deal with it even more scorchingly in chapter 23. But even more significantly, they have come to him as a group. There's a single definite article in front of both of these groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which means they've joined forces and come together, and they don't agree about anything theologically. So what is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? I think in context, it's quite clear. It's what they set out to do in verse 1. To demand of God more than he has already done before you will be willing to believe. Here's how some of the scholars describe the leaven. It's the disposition to believe only if the signs which compel faith are produced. Or in Carson's words, it's an attitude of unbelief toward divine revelation that could not believe Jesus to be the Messiah, but rather tried to control and tame him. The leaven is demanding manipulative signs instead of believing the already bountiful evidence. It's religious sensationalism. It's looking for the dramatic. Or if you want it in one word, it's morism. Saying, God, you've done something, but I need more than that before I'm going to believe in you. That is the leaven that we're told to beware of. Withholding belief until Jesus does what we demand that he do. Well, that is the main thrust of the text. And the spotlight for a minute now this morning needs to focus on the skeptics, the cynics in this room right now and those who are hearing my voice. Because some of you are here and, and I'm really glad you're here. This was a perfect Sunday for you to come. If your relatives dragged you to church today because you're home for the holidays, great. Because you need to hear this message. And, and my question to you simply is this. What are you waiting for? You see, Jesus has already swished it from full court. What do you want him to do now? Bounce it off the floor, the wall, the ceiling, and then in before you'll believe? I'm sorry, I have a small mind. I can only think in sports terms. But the point is this, that Jesus has already done what he's going to do. There's nothing more coming down the pike. Now, maybe you're waiting to see more of Jesus than you have or a better Jesus than you've experienced so far. You may be disappointed with him because of things that he's let happen in your life. You may be unimpressed with him because he's not done for you the things that you've needed him to do for you. Or here's one. Maybe you're waiting for God to correct all of the injustices in the world before you'll come and believe in him. 
Or maybe you're waiting for him to get rid of all the hypocrites in the church. When you do that, God, then I'll come and believe in you. And you know what you're doing? You're being just like the scribes and the Pharisees. You're asking God to meet you on your terms rather than on his. And this is testing God. God calls this an evil and a wicked thing to do. Even an adulterous thing if you have once known him. The person who rejects Christ does not do so because of lack of evidence, but in spite of it. See, Paul said that the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But all I'm going to do, Paul said, is preach Christ crucified. That is the message. Christ has died for your sins, according to the Scriptures. And he was proven to be the Son of God by being raised again from the dead, according to Romans chapter 1. And that is the only sign that Jesus is going to give us. The Son is not a showman. He prefers to be with us in cruciform. Now, this sign is a glorious one. In fact, if you are a thrill seeker, you can't do better than this sign. Can you imagine being there in the cool of the morning, that first Easter Sunday morning? Jesus has been cruelly crucified in front of hundreds of witnesses. His corpse has been locked in the tomb with Roman guards put around it and sealed. You come to the garden early in the morning. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus' body is gone. Where in the world is he? Something dramatic has happened. And then you walk in the garden and there Jesus himself appears to you and speaks to you. Now resurrected, come back to life in his new body. But very much alive. If you're looking for a sign greater than that, you will be sorely disappointed because none exists. And that's Jesus' message to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and it's his message to us today. Now, there may be some of you today who are believers, but if you're honest, your faith is wavering. You've put your faith on hold. It's gone cold after a time of having walked with him. This following Christ thing has not turned out as you had hoped that it would. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You're closer to it than you think. Beware of the trap of asking God to do more for you than he's already done. Because this type of cynicism is toxic and it spreads. We must guard against it. He has given us one rock solid sign, the resurrection. And that should be enough for us. Are you waiting to see the power of God in ways of your demanding before you come back to him? Psalm 95, God warns us not to harden our hearts as the people did in the wilderness. Remember what happened there? God had shown his great signs and miracles and brought them out of Egypt and he parted the Red Sea. And now they're in the desert And the scripture says that they put God to the test. They said, now can you give us water on top of everything else you've done? God was going to give them water, but they couldn't wait. And they demanded another sign from God. They were beginning to harden their hearts because God didn't deal with them like they wanted to be dealt with. And the scripture warns us, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of the rebellion. Because what happens if, if you're hearing this today and you, you, you begin to harden your heart even more, it's going to harden and it's going to get tough and the road back is going to be even longer. So hear God's call to you today to come and believe in what God has already done through His Son, Jesus Christ. So how do you get faith? 
It's not something that you can manufacture. In fact, the scripture says faith is a gift of God. But how does he gift it to us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the scripture says. So you're coming now under the hearing of the word of God. You're seeing the works of God. You're hearing about the resurrection. Meditate on these things and put yourself in a position where God can now grant you faith to believe in him. And that's our message for the head shakers in the room today. What a great day to come and declare your dependence on God. But now finally a word for the hand ringers. Maybe you've got no issues with faith in God. You're following him as closely as you can. But but here's our secondary application. What do you do when there's no bread in the boat? And I'm sure there are some in this room who have no bread. Well, you simply do the two things that the disciples fail to do. First, you remember. You remember all that God has done throughout history by reading his word. You even remember the things that God has done for you. Has God ever answered your prayer? Has he ever met a need of yours that you thought was impossible to meet? Has he ever come through in ways that you didn't expect? Remember the works of God and then secondly, understand them. Understand that behind those works is a God who is eager to help and to deliver you. So that if you're out of water, remember that at least you have the fountain who can continue to give you more water. We must not look at what we have, but at whom we have. And he is enough. As we close our meditation and our study today, I want to lift your eyes up from the landscape of this story to the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Because behind this story, there are two giant mountain peaks that show us the glory of Jesus Christ. The first is that we see Jesus as the revealer. You know what? God has not remained hidden. This is an amazing truth. God has not left it up to us to guess about who he is and what he requires of us. He has revealed himself to us. The scripture says in many times and in various ways, God spoke to us in the past. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the revelation of the father. And those who saw him declared that we have seen the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. We don't have to figure God out. We don't have to guess. He has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Now, true, he has not revealed himself to us, perhaps in strictly mathematical or linear or rational ways, such that we have to believe in him. It's not quite as clear as one plus one equals two that every rational person has to believe in. But God has revealed enough of himself. He has exposed enough of himself for us to understand what he is really like and for us to believe in him as our savior. His miracles do not compel faith. But if you see the works and his resurrection and have a heart to believe, they will be enough for you. It is fit that the proofs of divine revelation should be chosen by the wisdom of God rather than by the follies and fancies of man. God's all wise. He has revealed himself in his son in ways that he deemed best. So don't you or I go tell him how he has to reveal himself to us. The other great peak, slightly smaller in this text, is that Christ is revealed again as provider. You little faiths, this morning out there, what problem could you possibly have that would create a challenge?
for the creator of the universe. There's nothing. All you must do is believe with your little mustard seed of faith and cry out to him like that Syrophoenician woman did and say, Jesus, help me. And then watch and come, watch him come and deal with the 5,000 problems in your life and the 5 million ways that he has of solving them. Your provider. Who do you say Christ is? And what does he mean to you for your problems today? You know, today is our day of independence. What a glorious day to celebrate God's blessing on our country. But let me suggest as we close that spiritually you make this a day of dependence where you come and once again renew your faith in God's provision for you. Or if you have never made that step, would you come and declare, God, I now want to believe in you through your son, Jesus Christ, and how you have revealed yourself through him and become a part of your family. Would you pray with me? Prepare your heart to respond in dependence on God because Jesus is worthy of all of your faith and all of your trust. And if some would like to speak to me or another leader in the church afterward about how you can come to faith in Christ, we would love to talk to you. We'll be up here at the front when we're done. Our Father, we thank you for sending the Son for in exactly perfect ways and sufficient ways revealing yourself to us through him. Help our unbelief that we might see those majestic peaks of Jesus Christ and walk in newness of life as we live by faith. To the glory of God the Father we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.